take thou authority to preach the gospel. Indeed, I look upon all the world as my parish. And welcome to our latest episode of Field Preachers. All right, guys, you are in for a huge treat. I was honored and privileged to be able to sit down with Stuart Murray Williams from the UK, and I wanted to share our conversation together. He spoke with a group of about 15 church planters and talked about his experience as a church planter 40 years ago in East London and also what he's learned about church planting in areas that might be post-Christendom, which is if you are living in any type of urban area, right now in the U.S. um, or even some non-urban areas, but, you know, maybe out west or up in New England, what he shares could really help you if you are discerning a cult of plant or trying to understand the culture that you're in. So he has incredible insight and uh, lots to offer in ways of funding, team strategy approaches, uh, ways to talk about Christianity and discipleship and benchmarks and metrics for uh, planting in these contexts. So anyways, uh, listen in. You're going to love everything you hear. I promise, promise, promise. And join us next week for our next episode of Field Preachers. I'll dive right in. Um, so hi, guys. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Rachel Gilmore, and I'm the Director of Recruiting, Training, and Assessing for Lay and Clergy Church Planters in the United Methodist Church. And I am super excited and deeply grateful um, that Stuart Murray Williams is with us today. Uh, he took some time and will share a little bit of his planting journey with you and also his current work in training and equipping church planters. So a little bit of background on Stuart. Uh, he spent 12 years as an urban church planter. Uh, in East London and has continued to be involved in church planting since then as a trainer, mentor, writer, strategist, and consultant. Um, So for nine years, he was the Oasis Director of Church Planting and Evangelism at Spurgeon's College in London. In 1997, he founded Urban Expression, which is a pioneering urban mission agency with teams in several cities in the UK and other countries. And since September of 2001, he's worked under the auspices of the Anabaptist Network as a trainer and consultant with an interest in urban mission, church planting, emerging forms of church. In 2014, he became the founding director of the Center for Anabaptist Studies at Bristol Baptist College, and he's written several books on church planting, urban mission, the emerging church, and the challenge of post-Christendom. Publications include post-Christendom, church and mission in a strange new world, church after Christendom, planting churches, a framework for practitioners, which is on our reading list, uh, the naked Anabaptist, and a vast minority. He lives in Canterbury uh, and is married to a Baptist minister, has two grown-up sons and three grandkids. So thank you so much, Stuart, for being with us today. Thank you. Wonderful. Probably probably slightly updating, but it's more or less accurate still. So yeah, that's great. (laughs) Is it wonderful? My picture, certainly. You have a photograph, I believe, on there as well, which certainly is aspirational rather than uh, real now. That's all right. Everyone asks me, they're like, wow, your hair has grown like a whole foot, but it's COVID hair. So my headshots are no longer accurate. I think that's true for most most of us now. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, let's begin uh, with you sharing a little bit about your church planting experience in London. What was that like? What uh, were the challenges that you faced trying to plant in that context? Yes, I should probably uh, say that I was an accidental church planter. Uh, this wasn't something I was intending to do. I sort of fell into it, really. Uh, I was a student in uh, London. I was doing a law degree. And after three years of studying law, the one thing I knew for sure was that I didn't want to be a lawyer. I signed up with a small mission agency and found myself uh, deployed to uh, East London, to uh, an area of East London called Tower Hamlets. 
Uh, if you uh, know anything of London at all, Tower of London, Tower Bridge are iconic landmarks. And uh, Tower Hamlets, uh, historically, would be uh, what were once villages, hamlets around the tower, uh, but now uh, a very dense and multicultural urban area. Uh, I think when I moved there in 1977, uh, it was the poorest borough in England. Uh, that's not the case now. It's been gentrified to a significant degree. But at that time, it was um, really quite a challenging environment, but a very exciting one. I loved living there for, for 12 years and probably assumed that I would live there for the rest of my life. And um, just a sense of being at home there, really. Um, so I found myself with a small group of people involved in uh, mission activities of various kinds. And um, sort of accidentally, a church began. And the reason I think for that was that we encountered quite a number of very, very young Christians, uh, young in age and young uh, as Christians, for whom the existing churches seemed to be culturally distant. Um, They tried a number and it just wasn't working for them. And so we began to gather people initially in our home and then um, began to move into buildings, that kind of thing. Uh, so it just sort of happened and took us a bit by surprise, really. So if you if you do ever read anything written by me on church planting, uh, it's what I've learned since being a church planter rather than while I was doing it. Um, I probably wouldn't do it the same way now as I uh, as I did then. Um, but by the grace of God, things began to, to happen. Uh, so I spent 12 years there, and what emerged was um, quite an exciting, a very raw uh, multicultural church. Um, we were probably about... 300 um, adults and children by the time that I left. So a reasonably sizable uh, church for the British context. And I think we had something like 24, 25 nationalities represented. So quite a good, quite a good mix. Although, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting it was a genuinely multicultural church. It's really an English church with lots of different nationalities in it. And uh, so multi-ethnic probably rather than multicultural would be a more accurate description. Um, but an exciting place to be. Uh, very, I say very raw um, inner city, urban, uh, all kinds of um, social, economic, political issues going on around the place, um, but a thoroughly exciting uh, journey, really. And I was um, very disappointed when I sensed that God was saying it's time to, to leave. Um, I struggled with that for about a year, didn't want to go, um, but eventually got the message and uh, realised, probably with the benefit of hindsight, that the reason for me going was that uh, more indigenous leadership could emerge. Uh, that's what's happened. Uh, so the church is now over 40 years old, and um, the some of the leaders of the church um, are people I remember being born. So it really is sort of second-generation uh, leadership, which is, is tremendously exciting, really. Wow, that's amazing. I love it, and I love hearing how large it grew. I mean, 300 is a very large church plant, even in American context in most places. Um, and when God called you away, was it then that you started uh, your urban expression, or, or what was next for you on that journey? Um, the next thing I did was to take a break. Um, I think I got a bit closer to burnout than I realized. And uh, so I took the next three years um, doing some postgraduate study instead. Uh, which actually for me was a break. I know for some people it isn't, but uh, it was just great to be able to sit and read books rather than worry about people for a while. Um, and then, rather to my surprise, was invited to join the staff at this Baptist Seminary in, in London. Um, you may be beginning to pick up a theme that most of what I've done I've sort of fallen into rather than um, having any great sense of, oh, this is what I should do next. So I spent eight years uh, running what was then the only degree level 
uh, church planting course in the country. Uh, at the time uh, in the 1990s, when church planting was suddenly very popular in Britain, um, it was designated by the major denominations here as a decade of evangelism leading up to the year 2000. And uh, after being a church planter in the 1980s, when people thought that was a bad thing to do, uh, suddenly in the 1990s, everybody thought church planting was a good thing to do. Um, so it was really a, a privilege uh, to be involved at that time in this particular course. And um, many of the students I was involved in working with have gone on to do all kinds of things. Uh, they were a, a very uh, creative bunch, and um, I continue to be in touch with quite a number of them. So I spent eight years there, and during that time, um, became I think, increasingly concerned that most of the church planting going on in Britain was in more affluent and suburban areas. Uh, it was largely uh, bigger churches wanting another church. Uh, much of it was replicating uh, rather than anything very creative. Um, and that just wasn't my background, it wasn't my experience. And so um, I, I just thought, well, we need to find an alternative. We need to find a way of encouraging people to think about more creative forms of church planting and to do it in areas of uh, marginalization, of poverty, of deprivation, uh, and so on. Very, very similar to the areas that I was familiar with. And urban expression was the result of that um, level of discontent and a kind of experiment. I wonder what if, if we tried this. Um, so one of my students um, had uh, had a baby shortly after leaving the course and so hadn't gone straight into any form of ministry. Uh, but I knew that she and her husband were very keen on urban church planting. And so I basically met up with them and said, shall we give this a go? Shall we try something different? Um, shall we work with self-funding small teams? Uh, so we're not going to wait for the money. We're not going to wait for lots of structures. Let's just experiment. Let's try something, see what happens. Um, and we really didn't know whether it was going to last for more than two or three years uh, or whatever, but it, it continues to grow and develop. Um, so we're now 23 years on, and uh, it continues to um, thrive, not as a major um, initiative. It's small scale. We've got 24 teams in different parts of the country, but... The initiatives are all small scale, uh, not talking about huge numbers. We're talking about embedded communities with a kind of incarnational approach. It's slow and it's hard work, um, but it's, uh, it's exciting. And they're a great team of people that I, I work with. Wow. So what I feel is a huge gift from what you shared is, and everyone listening and joining in, feel free to blow up the chat if you agree or disagree with this. But what you've described experiencing in the 90s, you know, or early 2000s is what a lot of us are facing just now. What does it look like to send teams and to look at, you know, less funding, but just embedding ourselves in community and working in less affluent you know, context where people need Jesus as well. Because in the U.S., you know, I know I was appointed to plant a church in 2009, and it was really just their first step of embracing this emphasis on church planting. But you're right, it was a lot of like replication. Let's just, this is what's worked before. Let's just, you know, create another multi-site of this exact same order of worship or style or leadership or sermons. And, and you are just, decades ahead of us with this. So um, so how does Crucible and these modules fit in? So like for those listening, here's where I'm grateful for connectionalism because Matt Finch from the British Methodist Church said, hey, you might be really interested in these Crucible modules. Why don't you check them out? And I shared it and Bill Brown, a developer in Baltimore, Washington, jumped in with me and we have just learned so much. So tell us about, is our urban expression and Crucible related or um, where was that idea birthed? 
yes, back in 2004, I think it was, maybe 2005, we began a small training program, uh, which we called Crucible, and which was designed originally simply to provide some on-the-ground on training for our teams. So we had people joining us who were passionate about church planting and about urban ministry, but had very little background, very little experience or training. So we put together this um, fairly small-scale training program, which ran initially over uh, three weekends during the year. Simple as that, three weekends of training. And over the years, it's grown and developed. Uh, we've moved to a second stream, so there were then um, two years, so three weekends one year, three weekends the next year. So again, only six weekends of training, not, not extensive, but designed for people who uh, were already involved in pioneer ministry or were wanting to be. What we discovered very early on, really from the first time we ran it, was that as well as the expression teams, people from elsewhere were wanting to, to connect in with it. Um, and so we've always had a mix of people. Um, for some people, I think it acted as a, a way into pioneer ministry, into church planting. Uh, for others, it was something they picked up after maybe two or three years when they were recognising what some of the questions were that they wanted to, to grapple with. We've also had some people from more established churches who I think were looking for a safe place to ask questions they didn't feel they could ask safely in their own environment. Um, so I think it's functioned in that sort of way as well. Uh, so we've had several hundred people uh, train with us over the, the years since then. Uh, we've most of the time we were in Birmingham in the centre of England. Uh, the last couple of years we've moved out to other sites in different places. And then, of course, in the last few months, uh, we've had no option but to take it online. So uh, Zoom has been our saviour, as it has for so many people, so many contexts. And uh, it has meant we've been able to connect with people like uh, yourself, Rachel, and other parts of the world, uh, which was not the intention. It's always been seen as it's the local British course, but uh, we're very happy to have... Uh, connections elsewhere. It broadens the, uh, the learning. Wonderful. Well, and I'm taking uh, two of them right now, two of your um, courses with the CRISPR module, After Christendom and Church Unplugged, which talks about church planting with emerging church or fresh expressions or other versions of it. Um, and I have learned so much, loved everything. Um, could you take a few moments, because the others on this call haven't necessarily, well, none of them have experienced um, your course yet. But I found the conversation that you led on post-Christendom to be totally fascinating. So could you describe what a post-Christian or post and post-secular culture looks like um, and the impact the shift in culture can have on church planting in the church? The language of post-Christendom um, I've been using for probably 30 years now. I've written quite a bit on it. And... I'm convinced that it is one of the shifts taking place in Western culture that has greater significance for, for the church and its mission. Um, as I'm, I guess most of you will be aware, there are lots of post words flying around as people describe some of the changes in, uh, in our context. Um, probably postmodern is the one that missiologists and church leaders tend to reflect on most. Um, and I think it's important, but uh, we have tended to focus more on post-Christendom. And in our context, um, I think it is different in the US. In our context, that means that a church that was previously uh, dominant within society is now on the margins. A church that was very much part of the establishment is no longer where it used to be. It's uh, now in a plural culture, in a culture where most people don't know anything much of the Bible or the Christian story. I think in that sense, um, 
Britain is, you mentioned, a couple of decades ahead. And I think it is in that sense that we are now quite a small minority community. Uh, church participation in the UK now is around about 6%. Um, something of that sort. So we are talking about quite a small minority. There'll be others who would identify as Christians who are not part of Christian communities, but nevertheless, probably no more than 10% if you add up everybody. So I think we're looking at what does it mean to be a a marginal minority church in a plural culture? Uh, What are the implications of that? How do we tell the story? How do we share faith? How do we nurture disciples in a culture that is discipling people in all sorts of other values? Uh, all of those things really together. And by post-secular, I think that's something we've become more and more aware of, that in some ways our culture is very secular. So the educational establishments, the media, uh, some areas of public life are very secular, quite aggressively secular. Um, But at grassroots, I think there is uh, a whole range of emerging spiritualities. And uh, increasingly people are using the language of post-secular to suggest that we're not anything like a secular as we were meant to be by now, according to all the uh, prophecies uh, from the 1960s onwards. So I think it's a really interesting, mixed and challenging environment. And what we're trying to do with the Crucible course is just simply to give people some of the framework for understanding it, some of the tools for engaging with it. Uh, What does it mean to engage in mission? What does it mean to be church? Uh, What does it mean to make disciples in that kind of context? And seeing it as a a really good opportunity. Some people see it as a threat. Um, I tend to see it much more as an opportunity, uh, opportunity to disavow some of the compromises of the Christendom era, uh, when the church, I think, colluded far too much with wealth and power and status and violence. Um, and actually, I tend to prefer the language of post-Christendom rather than post-Christian, because I think what might emerge in post-Christendom could be more authentically Christian than we've seen for quite a long time. So it seems to me a, a great opportunity, but all sorts of challenges there. And I think church planting is one of the ways of responding to it. I don't think it's the only thing we need to do, but I do think that we're unlikely to make the transitions that we need unless we do some church planting, because it's an opportunity to experiment, to ask what does it mean to be a good news community in this changing world. Absolutely. I thought a really helpful discussion that we had on week three of the our third session together was where you talked about how the church is not the only agent of the kingdom. And sometimes we think the church is growing. It means the kingdom might be growing, may not necessarily be so, or the kingdom can grow without the church numerically growing and what that looks like and how to embrace it. And that's where I feel like so much of what you offer, you know, in some ways we're decades behind, but in other ways, I feel like everything I've learned from this course can be applied directly to a lot of contexts, especially if you're a planter in an urban area or, you know, in the Western jurisdiction or whatnot, where post-Christendom really has set in. People don't, I think I shared this story in one of the courses where um, I was doing ministry in Virginia Beach, which I wouldn't necessarily think is post-Christendom, but I was, you know, a, a girl had read the Bible for the first time and she said, you know, Rachel, why did Jesus die four times? I understand once, mm. but he dies in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, but she just had no awareness of what scripture was or what the gospel was or the story. So I think we're seeing hints of that um, throughout our nation. And that's where I feel like what you offer is so helpful because I think in that first session, you talked about the different ways that we can respond or the church or Christians respond to this post-Christendom being, you know, denial or revival, replacement, tweaking or despair. And a lot of what you shared really resonated with the response I'm seeing um, from churches today. But that reminder that we can live out the gospel perhaps more fully and fruitfully. Uh, something else that you talked about that I haven't seen in a lot of church planting seminars here in the U.S. was that when we try to 
create church or, or like embrace the kingdom of God in our context, it can't just be saving souls. It needs to be also healing or, or social evangelism, social outreach, social justice things. And sometimes in the U.S. context, they say, well, just focus on bringing people to Jesus. You know, don't worry about all that feeding the hungry and clothing the naked. Um, just give them Jesus. And and your course offers a different way to approach church planting, um, which is really helpful. Yeah, we, we've certainly understood what we're involved in with Urban Expression as being a much more kind of holistic approach to mission than that. Um, there are certainly some um, uh, some people in this context who would want to encourage us more along the Just Do Evangelism line. Um, we're aware that we could get some more funding if we did that, but it just isn't us. Um, we, we really do think it's important to be uh, involved in the, the whole of the life of the community and that sharing the good news is about action as well as words. It's about relationships. It's, it's whole lifestyle, really. And that's very much, yes, the approach of the, of the Crucible course. Wow. There's a big um, point of contention here in the U.S. church planting movement, at least throughout Methodism, as to what benchmarks or metrics should look like, uh, especially now during COVID, right, where you're not filling up school gyms with people in worship. Um, in the urban expression of the planters that you've worked with over the years or now specifically, what do you encourage them to look for as signs of, of fruitfulness or effectiveness? Yes, we've had to ask that kind of question, um, partly because some of our funding comes from uh, trusts, from grants. And uh, increasingly over the last few years, uh, grants uh, organizations have been wanting more and more measurements. And I'd be very clear as to what you need to say on the, on the report forms. And we've got to the point where with at least some of those, we've simply said we're not going to apply for grants of this kind. Um, you know, this is not the way we think in terms of measuring these sorts of things. Um, so I think we are much more interested in asking questions about depth and about um, longevity and sustainability rather than simply numbers. Um, so we're not primarily interested in gathering people into a building on a Sunday. We're primarily interested in living out the gospel in community and um, in the integrity of life, really. Um, so I think some of our teams would find it difficult if they were asked the question, um, you know, how many people? And they would want to respond in a variety of ways. Well, do you mean how many people gather when we gather to worship, which is usually what people mean? Or do you mean how many people are we involved with during the week? Um, and so the, the difference might be anything from 20 to 300. And it just depends on what you're trying to measure. So I think there is a, a willingness to be accountable, a desire to be accountable, but there is a resistance to simply numerical um, uh, measurements and a recognition that in the kinds of areas where we are, um, it's difficult to know who you count when, because for many people, um, regular gatherings, diary appointments just aren't part of the culture. Um, and so you may never get everybody who really is part of your community together at one point in the week. Uh, it's much more diffuse than that. And that makes it very difficult for um, denominations and for grant agencies to know what to do with. Uh, and we recognize that. I think the other thing that we have realized is that in our context, in a post-Christendom Britain, uh, it takes much, much longer to plant a church than most denominations seem to expect. 
um, you know, we are well beyond the idea that you give three years funding after which the church should be self-sufficient. Um, you know, that is just disastrous. Uh, I do quite a bit of consultancy with different denominations, and I tend to say to denominational leaders, if you're serious about funding your church planters, you need to fund them for at least 10 years, at least. You know, by all means, you know, see what's going on during that time, review, but expect to be funding them for 10 years. Uh, often the jaw drops at that point because that's an enormous amount of money, um, which leads to the follow-up conversation. Well, do you need to fund them at all? Um, actually, might it be better to move away from this funding model and to look at what some people call bivocational ministry, although I prefer the term one of our uh, team members uses, which is omni-ministerial rather than bivocational. He said, no, I haven't got two jobs. Um, it's all ministry. I just do it in different places at different times. Um, I think there's, a, there's an article we've written there about omni-ministerial church planting. Um, but all of our teams um, are self-funding, and I think that's going to be the way of the future for church planting generally. Uh, you know, our institutions are not going to have the money to fund 10 years' worth of church planting salaries. And, you know, when I was asked to plant a church in 2009, if they had told me, you're a young mom, your husband's also in full-time ministry, why don't you be bivo, covo, omni-ministerial? I would have said, absolutely not. I can't handle it. And yet, you're right. When, when a lot of um, us look at the future of church planting in the U.S., especially in Methodism, um, and with giving and whatnot going down during this economic crisis, being open to some type of co-vocational setup is a way to offset that reality that, because what we're finding is in, you know, more post-Christian or urban areas, you're not self-sustaining within three years. It's, it's not happening here already. So that was a really good word. A decade might make our jaws drop as well. But if there are planters on the call, they might be like, yes, I'm going to make sure my district superintendent knows this could take 10 years and that's all right. Um, so that's the, other thing, and the other thing to say is that we, we don't talk about self-funding church planters. We talk about self-funding teams. And that's really quite important. Um, the teams tend to be quite small. Uh, we're not talking about large teams. But we are talking about teams that are sufficiently committed to one another, but they will find creative ways of funding what they're doing. So it might be a mixture of, of some people working part-time, some people working full-time, or whatever. Um, but I think it's, it's a team dimension that has been quite important to us from the beginning, really. Absolutely. And that's another thing that is distinct in your context that I feel we need to embrace more is um, our church plants, at least our, our planters might not burn out or leave ministry entirely if things don't work, if they had that team dynamic. So when you encourage people to plant in teams, um, are the teams forged out of deep relationships? They have a shared passion and they already know each other and care about the context they want to serve in? Or do you look at a variety of gifts and skills as you're partnering people together? It's, it's been a real mixture. So um, the first few teams um, were formed before they moved into an area. So the very first team, I mentioned the, uh, the students of mine who had a baby, and then she and her husband led the first team. And they um, drew together six others, so a team of eight, um, who formed as a team and together decided where they were going to move into and what they were going to do. And we've had some teams that have operated in that way. So the team forms first, then moves into the, into the community. Increasingly over the last few years, we have had uh, team leaders move into a, a neighborhood, into a community, and form a team there of people who are already living in the area. Um, that hasn't been a deliberate shift. It's just simply the way things have happened. And in some ways, that has real advantages because people are already embedded in the area. Uh, they, they have long-term relationships there, some of them. 
So it, it's a mix, different, different things in different places. But we've always gone for small teams. We've never had a team bigger than 10. Um, and the reason for that is that we don't want to impose. We don't want to impose an alien culture. We don't want to say, uh, you know, we are church from the very beginning. We want to see church emerging and growing from the, uh, the grassroots. And so to have a relatively small team uh, is less risky in terms of imposition of, of culture and expectations and so on. Wonderful. Um, so I have two more quick questions. And then if anyone else has questions, feel free to put them in the chat um, or ask them directly uh, to Stuart. But when it comes to this post-Christendom and this context, what does discipleship look like? How is that different from what we grew up thinking? You know, I go to Sunday school and there's a little felt board with the characters that move around. Like, what does discipleship look like right now in, in your church plans? You know, I miss those felt boards. There was something about them that you can't quite get on PowerPoint because uh, you can move them around. You can play with them. So anyway, um, moving on. Um, I, I think part of it is to do with changing culture. So that's, um, I was speaking at a conference a few years ago with a colleague, and he used the phrase uh, a disciple-making culture to describe our situation. He wasn't talking about the church. He was talking about wider society and saying, no, there is no neutral ground. Uh, we are being catechized, discipled uh, all the time by the media, by the newspapers we read, by the films we watch, all, all kinds of things. Um, and so we need to be aware of that if we're looking at disciple making, uh, that it's contested. Um, and we don't any longer have the kind of background noise of a Christianized culture. Instead, it's a much sharper division. Um, and so I think disciple-making in post-Christendom needs to be much more intentional. I don't think simply going to church and listening to sermons and singing songs will do it. Uh, I'm not sure it ever has, really, but it's certainly right now. And so I think we are needing to rediscover things like catechesis, the, um, the early church induction into faith, which was a, quite a demanding process. I think more and more we're looking at um, issues of accountability groups and mentoring and coaching so a much more intentional approach. And I think also something I've, my wife and I have written on together is a participatory church. So rather than passivity, so that somebody at the front is doing everything and everybody sits there as an audience, actually be a congregation where there is a multi-voiced approach because you learn through doing and through speaking and through engaging uh, rather than simply being a, an audience. So I think there's a number of different things, but... For me, intentionality is probably the key. I love that intentionality and and the the notion of catechesis that it's really a life lived. And I think what younger generations especially are longing for, which could set us up well here in the American context, is some kind of mentor, someone to walk alongside them and guide them and offer feedback, coach them through life, um, but with that lens of the gospel, which can make all the difference in terms of priorities and. Um, decisions. Uh, so connected to that perhaps is what does a big buzzword or struggle here in the American context is what does stewardship look like? Like in these church plants, because they're not really big and they might not be self-sustaining for a decade, do you advocate that your planters talk openly about generosity and are they giving to the plant or are they giving to, you know, the local food bank ways that help transform the community? What does that look like or do they fundraise externally you know you mentioned grants and whatnot but if they don't want to answer or document all their data and statistics um yeah what, what does stewardship look like in your church plans so the, the grants we apply for are not 
or the teams themselves. We provide no funding whatsoever. Um, so our, our sales pitch to potential members is um, come and join us. We will not give you any money. We will not provide housing. We will provide a minimum of pastoral support. We're not very good at it, but we'll do our best. Um, please come and move into some of the most marginalized and deprived communities in the country. Uh, please commit at least 10 years to this and uh, probably it won't work. Come and join us. And that yeah. kind of counterintuitive sales pitch seems to work. Um, it, it could be manipulative, except we actually mean it. Um, this is exactly the situation. So um, it does mean that people don't come in with any um, false expectations, I think. The, the only funding that we apply for is for a very small team of uh, coordinators. Uh, nobody works more than a day a week, um, with an urban expression, but there are, I think there's nine of us now, who are working one day a week or less, providing some kind of um, strategic direction, pastoral support, coordination for, for the mission agency. Uh, that's the only funding that we apply for. So in terms of what happens locally, um, I mean, there are usually relatively few expenses. Um, I don't think any of our church plants has ever had a building of its own. Um, so it's all a question of using homes, rented accommodation, rented buildings, that kind of thing. Um, I think the, the level of um, sharing of resources within the teams has sometimes been um, very impressive. Um, a level of honesty and openness about financial issues, which I, I don't see in many other places. Um, within, uh, you know, when, when a team is planted a church, um, that, that church will, like all churches, talk about stewardship issues. And um, I not been privy to those conversations, so I don't know how they, they go about them. Uh, one of the things we've been very clear about is that Open Expression doesn't have any churches. We're a mission agency. We plant churches, but those churches then need to belong to a denomination. Um, so if it was, we haven't, then we've, no, we haven't had a Methodist church planter as such, but um, if we had had, then our assumption would be that if, if a Methodist team plants a church, it'll become a Methodist church, and become part of the local Methodist, um, whatever the structure is. Um, but you know, we've had Baptist churches, we've had Salvation Army churches, we've had a variety of others. Um, so we don't oversee the churches. We are very clear from day one about that. Um, if we start overseeing churches, we'll become a denomination focused on maintenance. We don't want that. So once uh, a church has been planted, um, the team either withdraws or it becomes part of the church and is no longer part of urban expression. So we haven't got to get involved in all that institutional stuff, which is uh, it's a great joy, really. It does sound joyful. I mean, the, there are pros and cons of each system, but I love your approach. It's a really open-handed one, just offering back up to God and the kingdom, whatever it is that um, comes out of the shaping and molding that you offer to those in your program. But do hear, it's not very impressive. You know, we're talking about small-scale communities, uh, ups and downs, backwards and forwards. Um, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of heartache as well as fun. Uh, absolutely. Well, and I love that you're honest up front in terms of what they can expect from you and how it will be difficult and challenging. And just the folks that I've been able to talk to in the, because you do a lot of breakout sessions, which I appreciate time to dialogue with other people trying this in other contexts. And um, they're, they're authentic, they're honest, it's hard, and it's a struggle. And yet they're deeply passionate and committed to what they feel God has called them to do. So um, that's really encouraging. Now, for those that you're, we did have a question come in privately that in light of this pandemic, how has that changed church planting where you are when you can't necessarily gather people like you were able to do pre-COVID? Yeah, I guess like everybody else, uh, you know, we're struggling. Um, 
because our approach is so relational um, that not to be able to meet with people. I mean, we're at present in a lockdown scenario uh, in the UK. We're in a, a four-week lockdown where we're not meant to uh, be in each other's homes. Uh, we're allowed to meet with one other person in the open air for exercise, and that's it. So it means that any kind of community gathering is, is just not possible at present. Um, we had a similar period of several weeks back in the, in the summer. So, yeah, some of our teams are really struggling. Um, they, they are unable to do what they would naturally do. Um, they're using social media. They're connecting with people where they can in the open air, when they can. Um, but much of what they would do is on hold at present. Um, it, it varies a bit from place to place. Um, I think some are just almost in a kind of pause mode, just waiting for this to pass and taking the time to reflect on what they're doing and why they're doing it. And that's probably quite a healthy thing. Um, some are really struggling. Um, I had an uh, email this morning from, from one of our uh, team leaders who's really struggling and just wondering, uh, what, what do I do in this situation? Um, others are busier than ever, um, involved with food banks, involved with all kinds of neighbour care, um, just charging around the place um, and finding opportunities for the gospel. And there are people waiting to be baptised once we're allowed to do that again, that kind of thing. So it, it is a mixed bag, really. Um, but there's certainly a struggle for any, any group that works in a relational way rather than a programmatic way. Uh, you know, we just can't do what we'd like to do. It's the reality of it. It is. We, we feel that here as well. It's, it's been a struggle. And so many planters who are hoping to launch a faith community, you know, this fall or in the new year are having to completely pivot their entire approach. So uh, we'll get through it together. We'll continue collaborating and communicating about what we're experiencing. Um, we have two more questions. If you guys have any more, feel free to blow up the chat or message me. And then um, I'll have Stuart tell us more details about the upcoming crucible courses, the modules, in case you want to jump in on this incredible resource. So um, Aaron from Out West said he's curious about connecting with the spiritual but not religious. And this is something that we've talked about uh, in the After Christian Gym course. Um, he says a growing number of people are more than a little suspicious of the institutional church. So do you find the term Christian or church becoming outdated? Uh, it's difficult to reclaim these terms with so many negative connotations. What are your thoughts? Uh, quite a number of our teams have abandoned uh, the term Christian. Um, because it doesn't resonate in the way that we want it to. Um, forgive me if this causes offence, but Donald Trump is a Christian. No. According to, you know, him and many others. Um, in a uh, Muslim community, uh, where quite a number of our teams are, um, Christians uh, simply means Western. Uh, it means imperialism, it means crusades, it means all the nasty stuff you wouldn't want uh, to be associated with. But the language that we found more helpful is simply to talk about being followers of Jesus. Um, I think that's helpful for a number of reasons. It avoids the, the Christian term. Um, it also tends to mean people's response is, oh, you mean you take it seriously? You're a follower of Jesus. Um, and there's also something about it which speaks of journey, which I think is um, helpful in many ways. So rather than saying, I've made it, this is who I am, no, I'm on a journey. I'm following Jesus. Um, and that's, that's more invitational. You know, come and join me on the journey rather than, you know, you're here, I'm there. And it's a very different kind of stance. So I think we find that quite helpful. The language of church, um, 
some of our groups use that, some don't. Uh, it, it varies a bit depending on context. I think what we're what saying to all of our teams is uh, you just need to listen to your context and see what works there. Um, one of the things that is common with all of our initiatives, we say to all of our new teams, please don't do anything for at least a year. Um, if we're looking at a 10-year you know, period, first 10%, we don't get three years, and of course that's an enormous amount of time. What we mean by that is don't start anything, don't run programs, just spend time getting to know the community, learning to know people, listening to people, uh, walk around the area a lot, um, spend time in the cafes, drinking tea, coffee, beer, wine, whatever it takes to get to know your community, and find out what God is doing there already. Uh, it's very much a, a missiology that says, well, God's already there, and what we need to do is to find out what God is already doing and join in. Uh, rather than the older model of church planting, uh, which I think we had here in the 90s, which was um, bringing God with us into a community where God wasn't already. Um, that's been a significant shift, I think, really. And so it really just depends on what you're hearing, what, what, what you understand from the community as to what kind of language you use. I love that. That's extremely helpful. And, and yet another thing I think we can embrace and learn from your experience and context is that the importance of listening, of just being in community and realizing that sometimes we have this colonial approach to church planting in the U.S. where we say, I will come in, I will introduce you to God, this is how you will worship God, these are the prayers you will use with God, this is what the space will look like and the Bibles will use. So absolutely. I, I love that. That's a really great word. Um, okay. So one more question that's come through. You may or may not have inside down. I don't know if, if you've experienced this or not, but in Methodism in the U.S., we have found that we have a lot of real estate. We have a lot of churches, many of which are not full anymore. They might have five or 10 or 15 people in a Sunday. So a model that different annual conferences are using for church planters is saying, here, come into this community. Here's a house to live in. And here's an empty church. Start a faith community. What would your recommendations or suggestions be if you have this big empty church building? Uh, take the house and leave the church building. <laughs> okay. All right. Accommodation, accommodation's great. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't start with the church building. That, well, that's certainly not our approach anyway. Um, we, we have something of that sort here, um, I think with Methodism to some extent, but also with um, a group called the United Reformed Church, which is a, a combination of uh, three different denominations. Um, particularly the United Reformed Church, which is probably the fastest declining denomination in our context, and so has lots of spare buildings, actually lots of spare money as well. And one of the things I've discovered is that the, uh, the fast declining denominations are the wealthiest, because they've, they've sold lots of their real estate, and they, they, they're beginning, I think, to wake up to the possibility of uh, using their funding more creatively. And so uh, the provision of accommodation in particular for church planters um, is a real boom. Um, and certainly uh, some of our folks have, have um, benefited from that. Um, but church buildings, well, again, it depends a bit on the context, but only if they're multi-use. Uh, otherwise, I think they're just uh, an albatross around the neck. Absolutely. If you can create a, a daycare or a coffee shop or something in that space, it might be worth it. But otherwise, okay, that's good. That's an encouraging and challenging word to a lot of folks on this call. Um, one last question before we'd love to hear more about the spring offerings of the Crucible modules. Um, 
So here in the United Methodist Church in the U.S., we have guaranteed appointments. So you are promised a job and a set salary and housing allowance, medical, all of that. It seems to be working against the approach that you outlined in terms of teams and and co-vocational or omni-ministerial situations. So are you seeing any creativity there in the U.K. to working around the institution with whatever types of denominations exist? Is there innovation in that way? How are they making it work? How are the institutions making it work? The, the big movements in the institutional church world is something called fresh expressions of church. You'll probably come across that, I would think. It's, it's been quite um, uh, familiar in many places. It was an initiative that began in 2004 um, in the Anglican Church. Uh, it was quickly picked up by the Methodists and then by most of the other major denominations. And the the thinking really is to find a way of um, expressing church in new ways without rocking the boat too much, without disturbing the institution too much. And so the uh, the phrase that has been very popular is mixed economy. Um, So the church as we've always known it and the church in a new way. So fresh expressions of church was the uh, language that was used. Uh, and there are thousands of those now across the country, um, ranging from the, I think, rather dull to the very creative. Um, but all of them an attempt to find um, ways of being church that will connect with people that the traditional church isn't connecting with. Um, they tend to be connected to an existing congregation. Um, and so they're not uh, church plants, really, uh, although some of them will feel like that on the ground. Um, but they are technically not church plants. They are part of the institutions. Um, and that's been a major initiative now over the last 15, 16 years. Um, and there are some very positive outworkings of that, I think. Um, on the other hand, for an outsider like me, um, it feels a little bit like domestication. It feels a little bit like, well, we've got all these crazy pioneers who want to do new things. Let's find a way of holding them into the institution. And it seems to me that many of the so-called fresh expressions are not quite as fresh as they might be if they were allowed to flourish without institutional control in the same way. Um, I have expressed this concern to some of my fresh expressions colleagues. And uh, yes, I think they understand what I'm saying. They can't say so publicly, but I think there is a a degree of um, disappointment um, within the fresh expressions movement itself that less has been achieved than they were hoping for. And I think part of that is to do with institutional control, uh, which is why we quite enjoy being a free-floating, non-denominational mission agency that we can just get on with things, really. It's it's, it's both and. You know, I'm not wanting to dismiss this at all. There's a lot of wonderful things happening there. Um, But I do find it a little bit domesticated, if I'm honest. Oh, well, I think we're starting to, and and the Fresh Expressions movement kind of hopped the pond in, um, gosh, I think 2014, in Virginia and is now spreading. Now it's it's really catching on fire here. And yet we're running into a similar situation where I'll find a lot of pastors that are like, oh, I'll start a fresh expression with a lay person or two. But it, you're right, it limits it. So if you could really empower teams of laity to go out and be innovative and not have the same type of oversight. I mean, the tethering, the accountability is helpful, but at what point does it limit that innovation and the impact and um, what God could do? So it's a really great word. And I I think all of us were saying, amen. I mean, I'm getting some (laughs) private messages. People are resonating with everything you're sharing. So, uh, so thank you for your honesty, for your insight and reflection. Um, 
again, that the correlation, the overlap with what we're just starting to experience that you've been living and ministering to uh, for years is, is so helpful. So if people on this call or people who will listen to this podcast or recording later want to know more about the Crucible modules and how to dive in, what's being offered and when and, and how can they connect with it? Just one thing to add before I go into that, which is that it's a few years since I've been to the US, um, but I have been many times. And my impression even several years ago was that in many of the larger urban centers, there's not a huge difference without context. Uh, I think in you know, many more rural suburban areas, it's very different. But in some of the larger cities, Los Angeles, Chicago, uh, New York, I'm not sure there's a huge gap really. Um, but, you know, I've, I'm a, I've been a visitor, so what, what do I know? But it, it seems to me I recognize some of the same dynamics. Um, but in other places where I've been, very, very different indeed. Um, yep, so the Crucible course, I mean, we are in a period of experimentation. Um, we've never run it online before. Uh, previously, it's always been in situ. Um, and we would love to go back to that at some point because there is, is a dynamic when you meet together that you can't replicate online. But certainly for the next few months, I think through until the summer, um, we will online. So there are, there are six modules. Um, if I just run through them, because there is a kind of journey. Yeah, we, we have a system where you can start at any point, so people can start at any of the modules, but there is a kind of logic to it. So we start off with the one you mentioned earlier, Rachel, after Christendom, which is really just trying to set the scene in terms of the context. The next one we have is called On the Edge, which is looking at the issue of marginalization and is really drawing, I guess, on our experience that it's in the more marginal communities, both urban and rural, that post-Christendom is furthest advanced. So if we want to grapple with the challenges of post-Christendom, that might be a good place to start, rather than sitting comfortably in the suburbs um, sort of waiting for it to come in 10 years' time. And then the third one um, in the first stream is called Church Unplugged. That's the other one you referred to, uh, which is really asking the question, in the light of the changing culture, and particularly in marginal communities, what does it mean to be church? What are the essentials? What are the non-essentials? What are the options? What does church planting look like? That's, that's, that used to be year one. And then year two, we began with a module called Restoring Hope, which is really about uh, community engagement. What does it mean to be signs of hope in a community and working for transformation? So the kind of big picture of, of, of kingdom, of mission, not just church. We then move on to one called Becoming Human, which is essentially about discipleship, but we've framed it in that kind of way. Um, what, what does it really mean to be fully human? Uh, is it enough to say we want our friends to become Christians? Or should we actually be asking the question, what does it mean for all of us to become more fully human? Uh, we work around those themes quite a bit. And then the, the final one is called Jesus Unplugged, uh, which is uh, really asking the question, um, what does it mean to tell the Jesus story today? Uh, what kind of language, what kind of images, how do we present the Jesus story in a way that makes sense in a changing context? So that's the journey, essentially. Um, online, I mean, as I say, we've been experimenting, and you've joined us in that experiment over the last uh, few weeks. Uh, we've been running three modules concurrently, which we've never done before. Uh, so we've been running After Christendom, Church Unplugged, and Jesus Unplugged. Uh, the reason we uh, chose to run Jesus Unplugged was that we had a number of people who had done all the other five modules, and we're meant to do the sixth module back in May and June, and uh, COVID hit. So we wanted to enable them to finish the course, um, which is why we're a little bit out of kilter at present. So we've been running those three modules. The plan is now to run On the Edge and Becoming Human in January, February, and March. 
So we're going to run two concurrently. And then uh, after Easter, we're going to run Restoring Hope, which will be the, the sixth and final one. So it does mean for the very first time ever, uh, somebody could do all six modules in one year. That's never been possible before. It's always taken two years minimum. Um, and we do have I think, two people at present who've been doing all three modules during the autumn, which is really sort of hardcore. Um, I think they're mad, but you know, that's what they've chosen to do. Um, so they, they could finish it if they wanted to. Um, and beyond that, we just don't know. I mean, um, if we continue to be in a pandemic lockdown situation, we will no doubt continue. I think we've learned enough over the last few weeks that we may well go for some sort of blended approach in the future. Um, so that's running part of it online, but then have maybe a weekend together when we're able to gather again, something of that sort. Really. And we, we're very much at the exploratory stage at the moment. Uh, we haven't even finished the, uh, the first run of the modules. They've been finished this week, as, as you know. So that's where we're at. Um, and in terms of uh, you folks and others participating, I mean, we'd welcome that. Um, I suppose a slight caution is we don't want to be completely overrun with Americans. Um, otherwise, the conversation changes significantly. Um, yes. So, you know, by, yeah, by all means, uh, let people know. And if there are a few who want to participate, that's great. I think if you discover there are quite a number who want to participate, uh, it might be worth having a conversation about whether we do something a little bit more focused uh, for, for that. Um, so, yeah, let's, let's just keep in touch about that. Um, but it was, it was really helpful. I emailed you and Bill to say, you know, how does it connect in the different context? And you were reassuring that it did. Uh, we have someone from New Zealand doing the course as well, and she also said, no, it works here. So it seems like it's, it's reasonably portable, um, but inevitably in different contexts, the, the issues are different, the context is different. And, um, so we just want to be a little bit careful that we don't um, shift it too far, if you like, into a transatlantic dimension. I'm sure that makes sense to you. Um, it's not that we want to be exclusive, it's just we want to make sure our primary um, commitment is to equip pioneers in the British context. We welcome others and it broadens the conversation. That's very helpful. Um, but if it becomes unwieldy in terms of numbers, we'll have to just think a bit about that. And we're open to that. You know, we've already mentioned that, that we, we, could, we could explore a different way of doing things. Absolutely. And, and I completely agree. Bill and I both had to say, we're not going to be those pushy Americans that have to be the first one to answer all of your questions and to dive in and try to be the representatives for all the breakout groups, because it, it is kind of our, you know, individualistic way to just dive in and try to make our voices heard. So what you said is very important. And, and again, not only have I loved all of the content that you've presented and felt like it was totally applicable to our context, but another extremely valuable part is being that different voice who can listen and learn from all of the other, um, you know, Brits they're sharing about their experiences. So I'm grateful that you're not, that you want to not let Americans overrun this course, because I do think we have a lot to continue to learn um, in that environment. So thank you so much. And we're, I'll be back at our courses today, right? So we have, to, it looks dark there already, but I know I'll be hopping on for two, two hours later this afternoon. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your ministry, for your voice, for your insight. Um, I think all of us have been blessed and benefited from this conversation. And uh, I will list information on our Facebook group of how you can learn more about the Crucible course. And, and again, Stuart, yeah, limit the number of folks that can hop in and, and maybe we can talk about offering it in an American context if that would be helpful in the future. So I appreciate it. appreciate you. Have a wonderful day and I'll, I'll, I'll see you soon. <laughs> okay, Rachel, thank Take you. Care. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. 
Field Preachers Podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.